0: My name is Kil Kubra, and this is Nightbeat. Tonight, an update from the Vice Chancellor of Student Affairs, a Rutgers professor looking to predict the death toll from coronavirus, and what treatments may be used to get things back to normal. That is all coming your way, but for now, here is your host, Joey Block. Welcome to
1: Nightbeat. I'm Joey Block. Tonight, we'll be breaking down the latest happening with the coronavirus at Rutgers and around the world. The current count, over 3.7 million cases across the globe, more than 1.2 cases nationwide, over 74,000 deaths, more than 131,000 cases in New Jersey with over 8,500 fatalities as well as more than 1,400 cases right here in New Brunswick. The effect of the coronavirus has taken shape on our own campus. It was announced late last week that Rutgers is going to hold its university-wide commencement ceremony virtually on Sunday, May 31st at 2 p.m. President Barchi made the announcement via email and said this would be fitting in a time of social distancing. The original keynote speaker, NBC Nightly News anchor Lester Holt, will deliver remarks to the class of 2020. As part of the ceremony, degrees will be bestowed upon the graduates. Barchi says more details will be announced in the coming weeks, but did not point out, but did point out that the university is looking into in-person celebrations within the individual schools once it's safe to do so. The university is going to have some staffing changes as it was announced today. Senior Vice President Barbara Lee will be stepping down in July. In an email to the Rutgers community, President Barchi says she will be returning to the faculty. He also announced the appointment of former Chancellor Richard Edwards as her interim replacement until incoming President Jonathan Holloway fills the role. He will take office on July 1st. A Rutgers engineering professor has come up with a new model of how to accurately count the death rate of coronavirus. Incoming WSU News Director Caleb Kubrick will be bringing us the latest on this with the professor himself. On a positive note here at WRSU, we have some special news we'd like to share with you about one of our own. We'll have more on that later in the hour. Today at a White House press briefing, President Trump announced he is adding new members to the COVID-19 task force. He says the task force's main goal going forward will be to reopen the economy. Those involved with securing ventilators in his words, quote, may be less involved, close quote. This comes a day after him and Vice President Mike Pence announced plans to disband the task force at the end of the month. At a press conference today, Governor Murphy announced the signaling of the signing of an executive order extending the public health emergency for another 30 days. Though it does not necessarily extend the stay-at-home order, It does allow the state access to resources that it otherwise wouldn't have. The order was set to expire tomorrow. He also announced the state is dealing with a team of experts to review long-term care facilities in New Jersey and mitigate the spread of COVID-19. The governor said the team consists of those with national experience and they will provide their recommendations to the Department of Health. Those recommendations will be on what can be done as well as prevent the spread of future outbreaks. This all comes as a Rutgers-Eagleton poll comes out today showing Murphy having a record high approval rating of 77% amongst state residents. I caught up with Eagleton Public Interest Polling Director Dr. Ashley Koning to dive into the numbers. Here's what she had to say. Uh, So I want to start off by talking about the recent poll numbers that came out today about Governor Murphy's approval rating. It has ticked up to 77%. What is behind the the surge after all this time?
2: I think undoubtedly his leadership of the coronavirus pandemic and outbreak so far has really made his rating soar. And his first two years in office, we saw that his ratings for favorability and job approval have been pretty lackluster. There wasn't really a major accomplishment that New Jerseyans felt, you know, that Murphy could hang his hat on. New Jerseyans really weren't connecting with the governor. He wasn't as visible. And so he kind of had middle-of-the-road ratings, with, with still a large number of New Jerseyans not even really knowing who he was or, or taking an opinion on him, uh, even throughout the first two years of his term. And so... The pandemic has changed all of this now. He's giving daily briefings. He's working side by side with Governor Cuomo, who's become, a, a you know, nationally acclaimed for his leadership. Um, you know, and, and he has been a very visible presence and displayed a tremendous amount of leadership uh, throughout the past few months as, as we've endured this pandemic. And, and New Jerseyans are really noticing that, um, you know, uh, especially so in his job approval rating. And now he's kind of touching the territory both in terms of favorability and job approval that few governors in, in the, the history of, of governors and polling in New Jersey really have seen. We, we've only really seen in terms of favorability uh, Tom Kane and Christy Whitman and Chris Christie really passed that 50 percent mark at certain times throughout their governorship and head towards 60 percent. And now Murphy becomes one of those governors who, who has done so as well.
1: A lot of people are pushing for a reopening right now, and a lot of people were kind of criticizing Governor Murphy for this very issue, And but they, a lot of people still support him. But now, today, these poll numbers were released the same day that he has just announced that we're going to be extending the public health emergency for 30 days, which may not necessarily extend stay-at-home orders, but nonetheless, it extends social distancing and things of the like how can you see this affecting his poll numbers?
2: Yeah, like I said, you know, it, it, um, it really comes down to what happens in the coming weeks. Obviously, our poll was from the, the late end of April to very early May. And any kind of new piece of information, uh, like what he said today about an extension of 30 days for, for the statewide emergency, that can all have an impact and it may not have an immediate impact. The impact may be more gradual as people become, um, you know, more and more sick of staying at home, uh, as the weather gets nicer, as they want to do summer activities. Um, so opinions of him in particular over time can certainly change, uh, based on all these different factors.
1: Can these numbers continue to hold up, uh, if a lot of people start to get antsy about going to the Jersey shore or are just not happy with what the governor does going forward or they don't like something he does.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, a couple of different things and going back to your other question as well, um, you know, we'll actually have some numbers coming out on how they feel about the pace at which New Jersey is moving. And again, that's a snapshot in time before Murphy announced more, um, Uh, more of the 30-day extension, but we'll have actually numbers probably in the next week or so about when they think things will get back to normal and, and, uh, you know, whether they think New Jersey is moving too quickly, too slowly, or at just the right pace. Um, You know, and and in terms of other things, the way in which Murphy's support right now can erode is um, primarily pinned on partisanship. So almost every single issue nowadays is a partisan issue, uh, that we see, and, and this is one of those rare, rare times, just like we saw Democrats in support of Chris Christie in the aftermath of Sandy, it's one of those rare moments where he's getting some bipartisan support here, even from, you know, those who are Trump supporters, even from Republicans in the state. Um, Murphy is getting support both overall and for his handling of the pandemic. Now, you know, as, as this continues, again, it might be something... Where that bipartisan support erodes, much like it did for Christie after Bridgegate, Um, and you know, then we see that Murphy's numbers start to tick back down again. So again, this is more of a rally around the flag effect that we often see with leaders in times of crisis, and these rally around the flag effects don't really last, um, you know, through the end of somebody's tenure. I mean, we saw that very clearly with Bush, who had you know 90% approval ratings right after 9-11, and, and we know where he ended up in terms of approval ratings by the end of his second term. So, you know, it's not really a question of if, it's a question of when, um, especially as so many factors are going to come into play, and especially as New Jerseyans uh, grow more tired, frankly, of, of being of sheltering in place.
1: Dr. Ashley Koning, director of the Eagleton Public interest polling center. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it.
2: No problem, Joey. Thank you so much for interviewing me. I I appreciate that.
1: Joining me now with reaction is incoming news director, Caleb Kubrick. Caleb, thanks for joining me.
0: Hey, Joey. Good to hear from you.
1: So I want to start by asking you, what do you make of these poll numbers that are coming out, especially the fact that it's the same day that Murphy is extending the public health emergency
0: for another 30 days? Well, I guess to start, uh, it seems pretty typical that Murphy's approval ratings are uh, looking extremely good right now. Um, he's almost touching that 60% mark, as uh, Dr. Coning said, and I think it is just because of the coronavirus crisis. Um, she mentioned the rally around the flag effect, which is how... Um, Leaders are seen more favorably when there is a a crisis or an emergency. And it is pretty, pretty obvious that I think, um, you know, Governor Cuomo and Governor Murphy have uh, two of the toughest jobs in the country with, you know, New York and New Jersey being two of the hardest hit states. So I think that we've, um, you know, done everything we can uh, when it comes to reacting to the coronavirus And I think you're kind of seeing that in our poll numbers. Everything that Cuomo and Murphy um, have done and are continuing to do is making people see them much more favorably. Um, I will actually admit, I think you made a good point in the interview as well that, you know, all of this, of course, you know, might not last forever. Um, People want to get outside, people don't want to be, you know, trapped in their homes anymore. So I think it's only a matter of time before. We see people wanting to go back outside, but of course we're going to make sure that it's safe before we can go back outside. And I think that's the governor's job and I think he's doing a good job about it.
1: Now I want to ask you about that. You mentioned the waving of the flag scenario and as well as people wanting to get outside. Uh, in the interview, I asked Dr. koning about that and I, obviously it wasn't a part that aired since we cut it down, but I asked her like is these, if these numbers hold up, do you think Governor Murphy would be reelected? And she's like, well, you want to hold back a little bit on that because you never know if these numbers actually will hold up because people mm-hmm. might get tired of it. Uh, so what is your argument to that? Are you in favor of what she said? Do you agree with her? Or do you think there's a little more
0: to it? I would have to agree with her. Um, I think that although we're definitely seeing Murphy's approval ratings spike right now, That certainly does not mean that they are going to last, similar to George Bush's presidency. And you can even look at um, former mayor Rudy Giuliani uh, post 9-11. He was seen as an American hero, and um, that honestly did not last. Uh, And I think these approval ratings, although they show that a lot of people approve of what Murphy is doing now, this does not necessarily mean that he's going to have um, complete success either – in the upcoming election or in the future so i think it's a little premature to say that uh murphy may be reelected, but it's definitely a good sign that murphy is tackling the coronavirus epidemic um pretty well as well as uh governor governor andrew cromo too all
1: right well sorry to cut you short caleb but we have ran out of time on this segment thank you so much for joining me i really appreciate it
0: my pleasure Alright,
1: so, like many things on campus, Student Affairs has been affected by the coronavirus, whether it is financially, through the recently announced budget cuts by the university, or by the simple fact that many of its employees are forced to work from home and are unable to connect with students in person. However, Student Affairs has made efforts to close the divide between them and students, as well as help many fellow Scarlet Knights get through this crisis. Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs Dr. Salvador Mena has personally helped in this regard. I had the chance to catch up with him to see how Student Affairs has helped those in need as well as how he thinks things could operate in the fall and how his personal life struggles have prepared him to deal with the challenges he now faces. Here's a listen. So I want to start out with how this has affected Student Affairs. How has that division of Rutgers been affected, in particular?
3: Well, in a number of different ways. I mean, I, I I don't think on one hand that we're different from others across the university, but on the other hand, you know, we are uh, in the business of serving students, um, in particular in person for the most part, and so this has really uh, forced us to think innovatively and creatively as to how we can best do that in this current environment. So, certainly there's a personal toll that the situation has. Uh, taking on staff throughout the division, obviously like many of us who are dealing with this. So there's that one part of it. So the Division of Student Affairs is comprised of a little bit of a thousand um, staff members uh, across a, a number of departments at the university from dining to counseling, um, student centers and the like. And um, and so, you know, so so obviously this, is, this has impacted people. And so that's one part of it. The other part of this is how do we continue to support students uh, during this current pandemic, and, and so we've had to do that, continue to do that, and we've been very fortunate that we've been able to leverage technology to do that. Um, so our counseling and um, student health um, professionals are seeing students um, virtually uh, via video, and, and that's going well for the most part. Um, our new students have been leveraging WebEx and the like to work with students over any number of related issues um, that are impacting them at a particular point in time. And we've been using social distancing for those uh, situations like the food pantry, for example, where we still have to be here in person and um, handing out food to students and, and, and doing that in the space that allows for social distancing. So we've been adapting, um, again, to try to support students who are uh, being impacted by this. And um, and so, and so, so again, so, so it's forced us to um, think about how we do um, and how we do other services, So I think we've been able to do that in a very short period of time and do it effectively, uh, to support our students.
1: So I want to talk more about what you're doing personally, since, uh, you've been through a lot of tragedies in our nation's history. Uh, so what are you doing personally to help out students as well as just people in general during these times of uncertainty?
3: Well, personally, I think that the, 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 the best thing that, um, that I can do like everyone else is to adhere to the guidance that we're being provided. And so um, so I'm doing my part to do that by uh, for the most part staying at home and keeping my distance uh, from others. And so that's, that's the number one thing. Um, and and then really working behind the scenes to stay in touch with people, to check in on them, to see how they're doing, whether um, family members and loved ones to, to, to my staff, um, who are still um, plugging away behind the scenes to ensure that we're, um, you know, supporting the university and supporting our students. And so um, really behind the scenes checking on people, uh, bringing them together virtually, uh, providing information um, as timely as possible. Um, we don't have all the answers, but uh, and, and it's okay to say that at times, but at the same time, if and when we do have information, it's important to be able to share information. Because uh, at this particular point in time, that's the most important thing that you can provide people, given all the unknowns that we're dealing with, both in the um, media, but also as we go into the future. And so, so I think those have been the, the, the things that I've been focusing on, again, is um, doing my part as a citizen, just like everybody else. Two, checking in on people to see how they're doing and, and trying to be supportive of them behind the scenes. And, uh, and then three, making sure that I'm sharing information in a timely fashion so that people have the information they need so that they can, want um, best served students, but also be in the best position to support our students.
1: So I want to talk a little more about your past experiences, like I mentioned earlier, dealing with crises. You've mm-hmm. been through 9-11 and Hurricane Sandy as a college administrator. How do those challenges compare to what we're dealing with right now?
3: Um, they were unique and different. Certainly they had their uh, significant impact at that particular point in time. Um, certainly 9-11 was a, a shock to, to the system in terms of how the, all that happened and how fast it happened. Um, so certainly we had to be responsive um, to that particular – I was at Brown University at the time, and we had to be uh, responsive to the community, giving the overall shock that we were going through um, as a campus community, but also as a nation in light of what happened. Um, Hurricane Sandy was a more of a regional event, and um, and I happened to be working at the College of Staten Island, uh, Staten Island, New York, which was hit hard, just like the Jersey Shore, for example. And there was a lot of devastation that happened there. The majority of students who attended the College of Staten Island were from Staten Island, New York, and so they were impacted in a very personal way, uh, with many losing their homes, um, their personal belongings, not having a place to, to live, to go home to as a, you know as, as, as an entire family. Um, and so, and as a small institution, we didn't have a lot of resources, and so we really had to stretch the little resources that we had to support students, um, as best we could. And so, so, so that was that experience, but again, it was a sort of a regional event, um, really hit home in a very personal way, uh, for many of our community members, and, and now we're dealing with this pandemic, which is unlike anything that we've experienced, that's nationwide, prolonged. Um, and the end is not necessarily in sight in terms of um, not knowing what we're going to be able to get back to some sense of normality. and so this makes this pandemic very really different. And so the the, the psychological um, mental health sort of toll uh, related to this one here is going to be felt for some time, given again all the unknowns and uh, and what we're dealing with in terms of this um, pandemic that we can't you know see, but obviously we're experiencing in so many different ways, um, you know, we, we saw the hurricane. We, we saw what it did. Uh, visually, we, we experienced it. You know, same thing with 9-11, but this uh, situation is um, different in that respect as well. It's something that, you know, we, we can't see. We see the people that are sick. Um, we're keeping ourselves um, at a distance from others. Um, but it's something that's out there um, um, that we need to uh, acknowledge but can always see with our really own eyes.
1: A lot of Rutgers students are now at home in quarantine, you know, their schooling's a little different. They're dealing with a teacher that's currently on a computer screen and they're having to look into a webcam as opposed to in-person learning and they're not with their friends and kind of living their own lives um, that they were looking forward to as well as trying to achieve their dreams. Uh, What advice would you give to Rutgers students now in order to uh, keep those goals in mind as well as how to achieve them, especially to the graduating class of 2020 who may have been planning on looking for a job who now may have to press the pause button on that?
4: You know, that's
3: a a tough one. Certainly what doesn't... um you know, uh, break you will make you stronger. And so certainly um, nobody anticipated that we would be in this situation at this particular point in time. Certainly my heart um, breaks for all of our seniors in particular. Um, You know, this should have been a spring semester where they were um, winding down, celebrating, looking forward to the future, um, enjoying all those different things that seniors enjoy this time of year, the celebrations, um, their recognition for their achievements, and so it's very heartbreaking um, to think about um, how their final semester on the banks is um, culminating. Um, and so but this will be um, a period in their lives that they're going to remember forever. And, um, and I'm confident that it's going to contribute to um, their uh, coming out of the stronger uh, with the type of perspective that's going to serve them well in their lives and, uh, and as they transition to industry. Um, certainly for everyone um, they're going to be experiencing this in different ways and so there are some students who um, are you know, are employed uh, even as they wait for the other semester, other students obviously have maybe lost out on opportunities because those businesses are not doing as well right now and that other students continue to deal with the unknown and so there's a broad range of um, experiences and emotions that um, seniors in particular are getting this right now. And, um, you know, so so being patient, being hopeful, um, you know, having faith, uh, believing in yourself, we're all gonna, we are going to get through this. Um, the nation has gone through um, periods of time throughout the, its history where we've had to um, go through something really difficult and come out on the other side. I remember the um, downturn in the economy during the 2008 um 2007 2009 um years and how difficult that was for that particular generation of college students where they saw their parents for example lose jobs and um and how that then inspired them to to want on to go on and get their education and so we're going to get through this and really stay the course and um not let the current situation put you down certainly no one expected this and um but we're going to have to work through it, whether it's us working with incoming students or whether it's continuing to support our seniors as they as they graduate, certainly continue to work your network. Certainly uh, career services here on campus it will continue to be available to you even after you graduate and so continue to be in touch with your faculty members, continue to be in touch with the various services here on campus. And, again, continue to, to work on your the alumni network. Rutgers has over 500,000 Alumni all in the world, and and they're all proud of their university, and will to uh, be there to to help fellow Scarlet Knights. And so, so again, so it, it's going to be tough for some, but again, we will get through this. And uh, the important thing is to to keep perspective. As I said earlier, it is a, a marathon and, and not a race. And so, in in some respects, this will play itself off for some students no different than it would have played itself off even when there wasn't a pandemic. You know, not every Senior who who graduates door, during normal times has a job waiting right after right after graduation and uh, and sometimes it takes a little bit of time even after you graduate to finally figure out exactly what it is that you want to do and so while there's a lot of uncertainty right now and that can contribute to the angst that many are experiencing I, I think it can help just to step back for a second and just continue to try to put things in perspective um that things will shake out accordingly. Even if they're even if they're different, I mean, obviously organizations and businesses probably will be operating um, differently for some period of time, and that's going to certainly have an impact on, um, on the the employment of, of, of young people. But it's also going to have an impact on how we work with each other, and how we provide service, and how we do these things um, differently from how we've done it in the past. So again, so so this is an, um, an evolution, and we, we have to begin the process of um, rolling with it. So that we can see how things are going to be different going forward. But again, there's there's no words that can really do justice to how things have culminated for our seniors, also you know high school graduates, but also college graduates, and um, this has really put things into a spin. But one that we can again certainly make good things out of it um, as we go forward.
1: So shifting gears a bit here, there are some models predicting that there's going to be a second wave coming in the fall and that social distancing may have to be continued what protocols are being either put in place or being considered by student affairs in order to continue operating
3: well the university as a whole right now is um, in the midst of having conversations about that Um, there's no information that i can that i can share publicly Um, but we are giving thought to various scenarios um, in terms of the uh, status of the university in the fall, whether that's uh, no students back on campus, some students back on campus, um, and how we might need to operate under those conditions. And so certainly the one thing that I can say is that we're going to have to pay attention to social distancing if, in fact, what you're saying about the second wave, you know, is true, Um, we're we're not going to be able to do business um, as usual. And so we're really going to have to think through um, how people live with each other, how people go to class with each other, how people ride a bus with each other, um, and how people congregate uh, with each other. And so certainly once we know better how the fall is going to look, we're going to then have to provide our community with some um, do's and don'ts and with some guidance. Um, and so even if we have um, protocols in place, the, the most important thing is going to be the guidance that we provide our general community in terms of how we need to uh, be with each other in, in the space that is Rutgers University in New Brunswick. And so, so, again, so that's to come. We are giving thought to that right now. Um, but once in, 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 in the month ahead, we should have a better sense of what the fall is going to look like. And then based on that, uh, we'll be in a position to move forward. Uh, what those protocols and guidelines are going to be for us to be able to um, be um, up and running uh, for the fourth semester. But again, we don't know yet if we're going to be um, back to back normal, whether we can only be able to have some of our students back, or whether we're going to have to be fully remote um, in the fall. So those are things we're still waiting on um, as we continue to monitor things um, out there.
1: Keeping in the mind the fact that you're still considering a lot of things one of the big things that student affairs does is be involved with student organizations. Now, student organizations, the big thing of what they do in the fall semester is recruiting. So how can these student organizations, one, function at all in these scenarios, and two, do recruiting um, in the event that they have to, go back to campus in the fall, or they don't actually go back to campus in the fall, considering the fact that this is a big time when freshmen come in, they're looking for possible organizations to get involved, how can they still have that same impact, you know, since in person they have the involvement there, and that may not necessarily happen, how can these organizations still interact and engage with new students if they're not in person?
3: Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, certainly there's no substitute for um, in person activities. I mean, that's just human nature. Um, and so there's no substitute for that. And so if there's any number of lessons that we were currently learning on the fly from what we've been doing this spring. And it's, it's been pretty amazing to see how um, the Division of Student Affairs, but also other um, departments across the university have been leveraging technology to really connect students. And so I know that we've done a new number of um, events and programs virtually. Um, that has really connected students. It's been amazing to be on a um, WebEx conference call with 15 students and see them all at the same time and facilitating that kind of engagement. So, again, so it's not the same as being able to walk down College Avenue and having the thousand student organizations that are out there representing their organizations with their pride and, and the giveaways and, you know, the sights and sounds of the involvement there. There's nothing that can replace that. But certainly, depending on how we're going to begin the fall, we'll be ready to uh, facilitate some level of of connection and to certainly make students aware of uh, what opportunities are available to them and then for us to be able to support them behind the scenes with the use of technology as, as best we can. And so, students are pretty adapt already in terms of the technology. Oftentimes, students are not even meeting in person anymore. They're already meeting virtually. These are things we know from the last several years, especially on our campus where we have, you know, the various campuses. And so it's more um, efficient for students to meet to be, be via video conference rather than everyone traveling all the way to Bush campus um, at 10 o'clock at night for in-person meetings. And so, so again, so, so we take nothing away from the in-person meeting, but at the same time, we know that we can leverage technology to help students stay connected around common interests and in things that are, you know, are, are, are of interest to them. And so we'll, we'll, we'll be leveraging that. And I think there's some lessons that we learned from the, the past spring in terms of what we've seen happen that uh, can still be of value to students. And we'll we look to stepping that up um, as best we can for the fall. But yes, like I said earlier, there's no no substitute for in-person interactions and, and engagement. And again, we are humans and we do seek those, those types of interactions and connections with each other. But again, just like virtual learning, we'll we'll, we'll be doing the same thing to help students connect with one another. But again, the students are already at at doing that because they've been at it for some time, whether it's the use of social media and the different groups that you can create through social media to the technology that we're currently using that they've been using for some time. And so um, we look to being on their journey with them when the fall comes around.
1: President Barchi recently announced budget cuts for the university. Is student affairs affected by that? And if so, are there anything that you and student affairs as a whole is going to have to cut back on?
3: I don't know in terms of specifics, but, but certainly we're going to have to evaluate the resources that we do have. The, the university is evolving. And so if students are not on campus, then we need to ask ourselves, you know, do we need the resources that we have to provide the service that we need to provide if students are not back on campus? If students are back on campus, then we need to evaluate the resources we have and say do we have the resources we need to be able to support the students that are on campus, and then everything else in between. So this is going to be a constant state of um, evaluating the resources that we have and the resources that we need and the resources that we can do without, depending on how the university is operating going into the future.
1: Dr. Salvador Mena, Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today.
3: Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. All the best.
1: My thanks to Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs, Salvador Mena. Coming up next, we will be hearing from Rutgers Engineering Professor Dr. Hoang Pham about his model. He says hopefully will predict the number of fatalities from the coronavirus. That's all coming your way right here on Nightbeat.
2: Oh, it's good. Ooh. It is. Oh, very.
1: Yeah. See what I mean? Brandy Alexander, they call it. Yum, yum. You're going to try this delicious concoction.
2: Brandy Alexander. Uh, Brandy Alexander.
5: Yes, I'll have the Brandy Alexander, please.
0: You know something? You're absolutely right about that Brandy
5: thing. We, oui, Alexander. About it making you feel good. Brandy Alexander Show, every Monday, 11 a.m. till 3 p.m. on WRSU-FM.
1: Welcome back to Nightbeat, I'm Joey Block. As parts of the United States look to open back up, workers engineering professor Dr. Hoang Pham created a model aiming to predict the number of deaths from coronavirus based on factors like social distancing, guidelines, and current confirmed cases. Incoming news director Caleb Kubrick caught up with Dr. Pham. Take a listen.
0: So to start, uh, would you be able to familiarize our audience with your mathematical
5: model that aims to predict COVID-19? You know, the, uh, COVID-19, it can affect anyone. Uh, Manly cannot, um, will not prepare anyone. And the disease can cause symptom monitoring from minor to very severe. And many countries, that we can see, that from India, from Italy, Spain, France, Germany. With a severe COVID-19, virus have come down in terms of the number of people die and the number of cases per day. But it had not happened in the United States. To go back, it, uh, a person have died in Washington State on February 29 this year, making the first person die in the United States. Uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, so as we can see on May first, last Friday, so the United States had had more than one million confirmed cases of the COVID-19, and more than sixty-three thousand Americans have died. So last month in April, uh, there had been more than twenty thousand. New case and more than one thousand have died every day in April. So I developed a mathematical model that can estimate the total number of person die linked to the COVID nineteen pandemic in the United States, and the model also can be used to other country as well.
0: Um. So. What exactly is this model based on that is determining the number of COVID-19 deaths? Like, what are some of the factors
5: that have allowed you to create this model? So we're looking at from the data available, so the several factors, including in terms of the social distancing policy, in terms of the reopening, and uh, the stay-at-home order policy and so on, but given the data available, so that means all the policy or the procedure, including the stay-at-home order, all should be the same from the data available. And the model we predict, the death toll would eventually be reaching about 79,000 in the United States, using the data available until April 30. And they were high confidence also the expected total deaths toll will be between 75,620 to 81,900. And the model show the COVID-19 pandemic might be over and hopefully should be in the United States by around the July 4th this year. But but surely the model also assumed that I mentioned if the testing and the contact tracing strategy, the social distancing policy, reopening of the community or state order will be the same, but if that change so the, in the coming week or the coming day, predict number will be also change.
0: How can we make sure that we do not reach the maximum possible estimation of deaths and instead uh, reach the minimum number of deaths that you mentioned in that range?
5: Surely we don't want to see the many the people die, surely. Along with the policy, I believe is stay at home policy also in a good option mainly because they how the people getting the, the uh, virus mainly from one to from one person to another so in a way to be due so the policy in term of stay at home or keep in term of the social distancing policy that in a way to avoid to get more people going to have infected.
0: And so with some states aiming to actually open up in May, can you predict that more deaths will occur because of these states opening up too soon?
5: I can I can say sure because the beginning this week, so that the, the first week in May, I think about about half of the state in the United States preparing to reopen their economy and relaxing the stay at home order and also various social distancing strategies. So there would be expected to see more people die in the coming week, Uh, unfortunately, but to me, every single one die is too many. What can
0: the government do to make sure we limit the number of deaths from COVID-19?
5: I believe the some the, uh, of the policies should be considered seriously in terms of a stay-at-home order. Surely, some may not be available to do so, but the but the but the policy stay-at-home and particular social distancing that will be very very important. Uh, given now a, the beginning this week, the, the many many state. Preparing the reopen and so on, so this is very very crucial.
0: So I guess my final question is: When do you expect the COVID-19 pandemic to either be really on the decline or ends in the United States?
5: This will be very very tough. Depend on the the, the policy in terms of the health of the state, uh, particular looking at to prepare for the opening. Uh, I'm sure everybody look. look i looking forward to uh, uh, reopen the economy and relaxing the stay-at-home policy and so on. But uh, but more, if more and more this policy uh, relaxing, so it will be very very tough to predict. But we uh, we hope for the best to don't have, don't see many more people die in the coming week.
0: Hoang, thank you so much for speaking with me. I really appreciated the interview, and uh,
5: please stay safe. Thank you for having me.
1: My thanks to incoming News Director Caleb Kubrick for that one. Coming up next, WRSU News Reporter Chris Sakonis is catching up with WRSU sportscaster and Ernest School of Pharmacy student Raj Shaw about coronavirus treatments. Nightbeat will be right back.
2: Hey, Kevin, thinking about saving for retirement? Yeah, but how do I start? It's easy with Avo, a retirement coach. Let's learn the Avo bet. A is for taking action. Not anxiety? No, Kevin, you're going to be fine. You sing? Barely. V is for variety. Huh,
4: change up my strategy.
2: Okay. for optimize your savings. Let Avo lead the way. Visit aceyourretirement.org today. A message from AARP
5: and the Ad Council. Bruh. 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 Alan, what are you doing on Tuesday? Bruh. This is relaxing. What if you tuned into Brum Meets World from 10 p.m. to 12 a.m. Bruh? On WRSU FM, New Brunswick? Bruh. 88.7. Bruh. Home of Records Radio? Bruh.
2: Because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council.
1: Welcome back to Nightbeat. I'm Joey Block. Governments and companies around the world are racing to find suitable treatments and a vaccine for the coronavirus. WRSU News reporter Chris Sakonis talk with WRSU sportscaster and Ernest Mario School of Pharmacy student Raj Shaw about what we can expect in the future.
4: We've now got our first FDA approved treatment for coronavirus, which is a drug called remdesivir. So if you could just give us a breakdown of how exactly it works and what are the benefits for patients.
6: Yeah, so uh, nice joining you, Chris. And, and remdesivir—it's um, a breakthrough drug here. Uh, it was initially developed and designed for Ebola uh, when the Ebola epidemic was going on. Uh, sorry, the Ebola epidemic was going on back in 2014. A lot of companies rushed uh, to make Ebola drugs. This was one of the treatments uh, that was formed and sponsored. But with like the Ebola epidemic, um, once that kind of faded down, this drug never really got approved um, overall. So it was always an experimental treatments lying around, but we knew that uh, at least in vitro, or at least in the test tube, that remdesivir is very effective against the SARS-CoV-2 enzyme. Um, And so it blocks one of those mechanistic pathways that allows um, uh, potentially to work in the body and and in patients. And what we saw with the recent trial, the adaptive COVID-19 treatment trial, the ACTT, which was funded by the NIH, um, sorry, the NIAID, NIAID trial, um, essentially patients um, had a benefit uh, versus the placebo of a 31% faster recovery time. So patients who were who receiving were the placebo, it took them about 15 days to recover, but patients who were receiving remdesivir, it only took them about 11 days to recover. And these are primarily patients who are hospitalized because remdesivir is a drug that has to be infused. It is not an oral treatment. Uh, so the potential benefits down the road are are quite impactful. It's kind of like similar to like, how you would get a Tamiflu for your flu. Um, It can shorten the duration of your treatment, um, which is quite helpful for patients. Uh, With Tamiflu, it it reduces your treatment by one or two days, remdesivir. Uh, Of course, more patients need to be studied, but can potentially reduce your treatment by three to four days. Um, And the mortality rate, it wasn't found to be statistically significant, but it was less. It was an 8% versus 11.6% for the placebo group. Again, those are very good encouraging signs, but you want to wait for more patients to be enrolled in this trial you want to be you want to wait for more analysis this is just a very pre- preliminary analysis so um, but it does have a lot of potential benefits for patients down the road
4: and i know there are some other repurposed drugs that are currently being tested so if you could just run through what the most promising of those drugs are and when can we expect any results on it
6: right so there's a, there's quite a few promising drugs right there on the market uh, and a lot of pharmaceutical companies have jumped into this, whether it's vaccines, uh, but for like the variety of therapeutics, I think monoclonal antibodies are something that can be uh very useful uh down the road. Uh companies that you might want to look out for, uh especially Eli Lilly, uh Regeneron, uh, Verbiotech is a small company, but they've they've received funding as well. A lot of these pharmaceutical companies, um, major pharmaceutical companies and small pharmaceutical companies are actually working together. Uh, whether it's for vaccines or or for monoclonal antibodies. And why it's monoclonal antibodies are so promising um, is because we've seen these drugs to be used or at least been tested in oncology. Um, they've, they've worked very well. Um, they can be very specific drugs. So uh, just like your immune system, there's, ta- there's thousands of antibodies in your, I mean, millions of antibodies in your immune system. They're very specific for certain types of antigens that are in viruses. So if you can identify the antigen for the COVID-2 virus, and, and find out which antibody works for it and then proliferate it and, and give people an infusion of that, it could be a very effective drug um, overall. The way that monoclonal antibodies really fail is when, 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 can, when cancer cells or other types of cells really mutate. Um, but we haven't seen that with this virus, at least. Uh, we haven't seen any analysis that this virus is mutating. And we can see potentially these drugs being tested um, probably in June, July, early. That's when Regeneron has said that they'll probably start testing as well. Um, but if optimistically, hopefully you have these drugs by the fall, so when you do have your second wave or when the second wave does occur, hopefully by then, um, you, you have these drugs that can pretty much, you know, help a lot of patients uh, receive care that you were not able to offer earlier.
4: So is it a fair bet to say that at least one of those antibody drugs that you're referencing are gonna work to a significant extent in terms of improving outcomes for severe patients?
6: Yeah, we, I mean, yeah, we, we developed antibody drugs I mean, and pharmaceutical companies have developed antibody drugs for a slew of diseases. Like I said, they've developed oncology, rheumatoid arthritis, um, some have been for asthma, but like, you know, these drugs are, are, are pretty specific and, and they have been shown to work really well. Um, you still have to remember that when you, when, whenever the whole drug development process goes through um, even phase three candidates, a majority of them will fail at the end of the day. Uh, just because it's hard to get the efficacy results. But when you have so many pharmaceutical companies uh, jumping on board, um, you know, from small to big pharma, you, you, can pretty be, you can pretty much be confident that at least a couple of these drugs will work. Um, and then remember, the Regeneron and Sanofi are also t- testing other drugs that they've had on the market. Uh, I think another one ones like Kevarza that they're testing for rheumatoid arthritis. I don't know if the results have been as promising as they would have liked for that. Uh, but what currently is going on is they're trying out treatments that have already been developed to see... Are these effective against coronavirus or against SARS-CoV-2, which, which you know, theoretically might be possible. Um, but when you test it in the human body, it just, you know, for some reason, it doesn't work out that way. Uh, but, yeah, you can be pretty confident when some of these drugs will work. Um, Timeline-wise, that's still a question down the road, right? Hopefully by the fall, um, you can be pretty optimistic that one of these drugs will work by the fall. But the other question that you also have to put in place is, yes, this drug works, but now do you have the manufacturing capacity to make uh, tens of millions of doses for patients who need it. Right. Um, you know, we saw recent reports that, that, you know, rate cases will continue to rise persistently about thirty thousand a day. So if those are symptomatic patients, like, well, do you have enough doses in hospitals enough doses available so that these patients can get them um, and you can treat them. So there's gonna be a component of whether this drug works. And the second component is like, can the government subsidize a way for, these companies to manufacture tens of millions of these drugs at the same time they're testing them.
4: And have we seen any effort to scale up manufacturing ahead of those test results like we have with vaccines?
6: Uh, yeah, I mean, you're going to see, um, I mean, remdesivir is definitely going into that mode, especially they've, they've opened up different plants to see if they can scale up manufacturing, um, try to get millions of doses available as possible. Um, regarding vaccines, I think we are seeing that. I think you saw, I've seen uh, this Trump administ- administration say that they'll try to have, uh, they're very optimistic they'll have a vaccine by the end of the year, maybe early next year, and at the same time, develop 300 million doses as well. So uh, manufacturing is, is still a question mark, but I, I wouldn't be doubt if the FDA is working with these pharmaceutical companies to pretty much cut through regulations so that they can start, uh, whether start opening up manufacturing facilities overseas or within the United States.
4: So basically, Oxford, I'm going to key on that one because that's the one that has the most optimistic timeline. And
6: Yeah, I have heard about that, yes. Yeah.
4: One of their re- lead researchers said they have an 80% confidence that the drug will work and be safe. So do you think that timeline of first results by June, full results by September, do you think we could have an effective vaccine by the fall?
6: Uh, I I've never seen it done that fast before. I believe I've seen reports of it being 80% effective, but the people who are leading that trial said 80% is maybe a bit too optimistic. Uh, but they are very confident based on the results that they've seen per day. Uh, yeah, I mean they've started testing. Uh, June interim analysis wouldn't surprise me. Uh, that is three days out, but again, you're seeing like a, a scale of an effort that's never—it's never really been done regarding vaccines before, just because of the pandemic. I think fall might be too optimistic of a deadline. You might be looking at something near the end of the year, uh, but it is a different technique. Um, you see—you've seen uh, the Oxford candidate looks very promising, but today you saw Pfizer jump on board as well. Um, they've started beginning human testing as well, so they're—they're uh, they're beginning human trials at a relatively fast rate. Um, but remember, even when we get a vaccine done, uh, there's no guarantee that uh, we'll have herd immunity established. It might take multiple rounds of vaccinations before we get herd immunity to occur and before things can really return back to normal. And you have to remember, like we said earlier, just with like therapeutics, you also have to scale up manufacturing. And, and there's no question why they why these companies shouldn't be able to do that. You know, annually in America, you have anywhere from 160 to 190 million doses of flu vaccinations made. So there's no question why you can't make hundreds of millions of doses, at least for the population in the United States of America to at least get the vaccines properly. But reports by like the Gates foundation, if you want to like vaccinate the entire world, they rec- they're estimating nearly 14 billion uh, doses of vaccines. So that's quite a lot. Um, I don't think anybody's ever made it to that scale before, but that would take quite a quite an effort from at least from a manufacturing point of view to get it to that.
4: And my final question to you is sort of, what do we need to get back to normal? Does it have to be a vaccine or could we be in a timeline where, say, a couple of those antibody drugs come online and we're able to ramp up manufacturing? Could that provide an effective enough treatment where we could relax some of these social distancing measures before the vaccine is widely available?
6: Yeah, I mean, you're you're starting to see that a little bit right now, right? I mean, at least a lot of people are protesting uh, right now in a lot of states that they want to get back to normal. But uh, when you say normal, it, it really is going to be defend person to person. When do you consider normal going to a sporting event and, and being able to be in a crowd of 40,000 people, or do you consider normal just being able to go back to work and, and come back home? Um, I think people are going to start opening back up to work quite soon. Um, maybe late March, I mean, late May, early June, where you, have, you start to see, like sporadically people going back to work, uh, you start seeing malls starting to open, but you'll never be fully safe until you at least get one of these monoclonal antibodies on board. Um, that's gonna provide a very good buffer in a way to a vaccination. So I don't think we will never, I don't think we'll ever see people really confidently flying in as much or going back to a sporting event or going back to um, uh, I don't know, a major event, maybe a concert until you get a vaccine on board where, where people are quite sure that you know they cannot they have the tools in their body. Uh, to fight this disease off. Their immune system is strong enough to fight this disease off. So it it really depends on what your definition of normal is. It's going to be a person-to-person thing. Uh, But I mean, you know, if you look at one of the most conservative approaches, which essentially says you need to be testing around 430,000 people a day, we're not there yet. Um, We haven't seen a persistent decline of 14 days of cases in America. Maybe some states, maybe in the tri-state region, we definitely have seen that now that you can see New Jersey, Connecticut, New York starting to reopen. Um, But there's a lot of states out there in America that still right now, uh, from I think a recent report was like 18 or 19 states are still continuing to see a persistent rise in cases. So um, it's premature to think that every state should open up at the same time. It should be a state by state approach. Uh, But a lot of it's going to come down to, uh, Chris, like whether you have enough testing in place. Are you going to be able to get to 500, 600,000 tests a day? That's the minimum you probably think you need to make sure you're testing about 1% of the population a week uh, to, to really start seeing things back, open back up. And really, I think sporting events and like things regarding like having masses of people, you really won't see that until you get a vaccine on the market.
4: So antibodies won't get us a packed SHI stadium is what you're saying?
6: No, it will not get you a packed SHI stadium, but I think it will improve outcomes for for patients who are in hospitals. Um, You might see an improvement in mortality rates, uh, but it it could be another path forward to potentially, you know, you having small gatherings. So you might have like potentially only limiting gatherings to 250 people instead of like 50 people right now. So you might have a little bit of bump up in that way. Uh, You know, you might get your beaches open. You might get a lot of things open. But I think the last thing that's going to come into effect is Uh, an SHI stadium that's full, that hasn't been for quite a while. I think you're pretty confident with that one. Uh, And then the next thing, I think the next step is a lot of companies have developed a fourth step, which is like getting yourself for the next pandemic. I mean, how do you make sure you're ready for a pandemic that's worse than coronavirus? I mean, SARS-CoV-2. This is not, if you ask a lot of epidemiologists from from what I've read, uh, they uh, they say this is not the worst case scenario. Things could have been far worse if you had a more deadly disease on your hands.
1: Our thanks to WRSU News reporter Chris Sakonis for getting the story. Earlier tonight, Rutgers University held its fifth annual Chancellor's Leadership Gala, and our outgoing general manager, Justin Santube was honored. Give it a listen.
3: Our next award, the Spirit of Rutgers Award, recognizes individuals or student organizations that represent the values, traditions, and mission of Rutgers through their outstanding engagement, enthusiasm, spirit, and commitment to the campus community. The award recipients have made significant contributions to the community as a positive ambassador to the university while working to increase pride among their peers. This year's individual Spirit Rutgers Award recipients are Jacqueline Santiago, class of 2020, major Communications and Human Resource Management. Justin Santu, class of 2020
1: major finance. I want to extend my personal congratulations to Justin as he's really been an asset to the station and will surely be missed as he's graduating in, I guess, a couple of weeks, you know, virtually, anyways. That's how it goes. If anyone deserves it, it's him. He, it, it was truly an honor to work under his leadership this year and as he helped me personally as a manager and a friend. He was also a big help to the department. He helped out with Nightbeat in the beginning, uh, helping Caleb and I with that. So I just want to thank him for that, obviously, and congratulate him on this award. Truly well-deserved. So if you're listening out there, which you probably aren't, you're probably living it up, you know, in your quarantine house. And I don't know how much you can live it up, but I'm sure you're going to try. You will find a way to do it. Um, But seriously, Justin, great job couldn't think of a better person for it and um, look forward to seeing what you do next whether it's sports play by play or you know just simply doing something I know you'll figure it out because you're that kind of guy but anyways we are out of time here but you know I want to spend some thank yous out since you know this show I don't do it just by myself It may sound like it sometimes, but no, it is not. Uh, My thanks to our broadcast administrator, Mike Pavlichko, for running the board tonight, as well as incoming news director, Caleb Kubright, for coming on, as well as WRSU news reporter, Chris Sakonis, for all his help as well. If you ever miss an episode of Nightbeat, you can listen to it online by going to wrsu.org and Searching for Nightbeat, but also, you might want to look around at the news page a little bit. It's going to look a little different soon. You know, we're, we're in the works of some stuff. I've just been told that within the last hour. So, you might want to check that out soon, within the next week or so. Anyways, that about wraps it up for me tonight. I'm Joey Block. Coming up, it's more music programming right here on WRSU-FM New Brunswick.